Solve for X is sponsored by Lessons from Super Mario, our game design thinking mini course. Learn to tap into the power of video games and leverage it for your business. We're partnering with Stanford University lecturer Chris Bennett to bring you a bite-sized but supercharged course designed to help you build engagement loops that keep your customers coming back for more. Visit https forward slash forward slash bit dot ly slash gdt hyphen mini or look for the link in the show notes for this episode to sign up. So today I thought we could talk about episodes of engagement in a different way. And you and I are students of this in terms of our own personal growth and development between the two of us and then with other people as well. Because it turns out that, you know, when we, our lab question of how good can we be to each other, it turns out to be a very personal one. Indeed. Yes, we, we have been each other's students in this, looking at how do we design episodes of engagement. I was listening to a Tim Ferriss podcast recently where he was talking to Jim Desmer. And Desmer has done a lot of work on conscious leadership. There was one bit that really stood out for me that I wanted to share with you. And uh, Desmer talks about how to move from victim consciousness into other states and how do you live your ethics and your leadership and so on, right? How do you, it's really about authentic leadership, but in order to be an authentic leader, you have to be an authentic person as well. And he was talking about the relationship that he had with his wife and how they operate to have a co-committed relationship rather than a codependent relationship. And he was saying that in a codependent relationship, you're focused on making the other person happy. And one of the unintended consequences of operating that way, and by the way, a lot of family systems work that way. Certainly, it's very common in family dynamics or relationship dynamics where there's addiction or alcohol. That's a very common outcome. You work very hard to make the other person happy. But what that can breed is resentment and entitlement, according to Deathmer. The example he gives is say a husband is taking care of the kids for the weekend because he does that to make his wife happy. And what that does is it breeds resentment in him because he didn't want to do it, but he's doing it to make her happy. And then he decides to go out and have a night out with the guys because he feels entitled. And so you get into this very bad negative feedback loop that's ultimately corrosive in the relationship, right? And you can see that also in work relationships, if you're doing things to make other people happy or you're saying things to make other people happy because you don't want to create a conflict because this codependency is all about avoiding conflict and confrontation, right? And so the perceived solution is I'll just give in, right? Keep the peace. He says in a co-committed relationship, you're focused on making yourself happy. It's your job and your responsibility to make yourself happy and for the other person to make themselves happy. So that way, when you have an episode of engagement in our lingo, you can authentically express where you're at. And you can speak honestly, you can speak your truth. And it can be as simple as, you know, thinking of getting pizza for dinner. And you might say, oh, you know, you could go along and make that person happy, but you're going like, well, I'm trying to watch my diet or my carbs and all that, but I'm going along even though it's detrimental to me, as opposed to saying authentically, well, pizza isn't really great for me. Could we get a salad as well, right? To accommodate both needs and then both parties are happy. And I thought that was a really interesting lens on episodes of engagement in terms of how we show up, because if we can't show up as our authentic selves, then we put a blocker on our creativity and we put a blocker 
on our talents and our aspirations because we're saying, I can't move forward on that because there's no safe space for me to do that. I have to be other focused. And it's funny because certainly in my upbringing, to be other focused was considered to be a virtue, that you should think of others first. But the way Deathmer was talking about it made me step back and think, huh, maybe I need to revisit this because if I'm not showing up authentically, then the opposite of that is showing up dishonestly, right? And that's not how I wanted to show up as being a dishonest version of myself. But you can see how you, you can end up in a place where you didn't intend to be by having these false narratives in your head. I really like several aspects of that. I mean, I'm going to do the non-peace innovation thing and start with the negative because I I saw there's like only one negative thing to address there, which is that the resentment and entitlement are even worse than what he's saying because it's bilateral resentment and bilateral entitlement. The wife probably resents that she had to ask the husband to take care of the kids and he didn't just notice and realize it needed to be done and volunteer. And then she also probably feels entitled. You end up with a vicious circle sort of on both sides, right? If it was only one person feeling resentment and only one person feeling entitled between two people, that would be bad. But in fact, it's twice as bad because these things build uh, equal and opposite effects where the resentment of one party becomes contagious and infectious, causes resentment in the other party. The entitlement in one party also causes a sense of entitlement in the other party. and You get a double whammy. Margarita, this reminds me of what... Taylor taught us, shout out to Taylor Kinney here, about strong frames. So we had one of our students at Sanford was a professional ballroom dancer. She was a competitive ballroom dancer. Right, which is non-professional. Anyway, Taylor can correct me later, but she was a very good dancer and she taught dance at Sanford. And she gave us lessons because we were looking at the time that BJ was doing his design for dance class. We were looking at dance also as a metaphor for episodes of positive engagement and so on. And what could we learn from embodied episodes of positive engagement? The striking lesson for both of us from Taylor was the whole notion of strong frame, the notion that if you're both trying to make each other happy, you just go around in circles and you end up with neither party being able to coordinate uh, to, to make either party happy and you end up with stepped on toes. Right. And in ballroom dance, the strong frame has to do with how you hold your body. And so the male does the lead And if he doesn't have a strong body posture, then the female can't follow effectively. So if he holds himself a little bit rigid, then the mechanics work of moving around. If you're flopping around, then there's no energy to move on the dance floor. And that was so interesting to say that it's not about lead as in dominating, but lead as in a signal of this is the direction that we're going to move. And then as he directs her, she can be more successful. And as she responds, he can respond in kind. So it's very much being in relationship with each other so that both sides can shine. And that was super interesting, realizing just how you hold yourself physically can make it easier for someone else to interact with you. If you're all over the place and mushy, <laughs> you know, it's hard to figure out literally where you stand. In bottom dead, it's like, you know, where, where are your feet? Where are you standing? And if you don't have a strong frame, if I step forward and your foot steps back, if, if that's not clear, then we will literally step on each other's toes. Right, right. Yeah. Unintentionally. With the best intentions in the world, you end up with pain instead of happiness. Yeah. That was a very striking lesson for me, particularly, as you said, it's not about dominance. It's about really clear signaling. And it's also about having said in advance, okay, you lead this bit and some other role, I'll lead that bit and so on. And I'm seeing more and more more ballroom dance uh, these days, by the way, that is designed where they switch leads back and forth for different um, things. So nice. um, I don't I don't know if that's a thing or not, but I, I'm seeing more of it. 
it was striking for me because I, the first couple of years of our working relationship, we were trying to make each other happy. And sometimes as we were trying to start a lab, direct a lab, run a lab, find funding, do all these things and, and get things going and keep each other happy. Sometimes that was hard because we were both- Sometimes? <laughs> pretty much all the time, yes. We were both coming from this attitude of, of trying to make the other one happy and it ended up being a chasing our own tails kind of thing, again, in spite of the best intentions. So that was striking for me. The third thing that lands really positively about the notion of co-committed is you can come to the table, you can come to your colleague, your partner, your spouse, whoever it is, your child, you can come to an interaction from a place of surplus, from a place of abundance. You know, I have my happiness already because I'm in charge of my happiness and I got some already and I can bring it to the table to share with you. And that seems counterintuitive because a whole lot of the way our society is constructed, part of the hooks that keep people engaged with society in some less healthy societies, there's a fundamental idea that your happiness comes from other people, not from you. And you have to be good to other people, be nice to other people, etc., in order to get happiness. It's almost like a manipulation. The corollary to that is people find happiness in life in relationship with other people. You don't find happiness from objects. You don't find happiness from wealth. When they look at seniors, older people, people on their deathbeds, they don't say like, you know, I led an amazing happy life because I, you know, <laughs> I had a pile of money. It was, yeah. I had a happy life because I had friendships, I had relationships, I had love and all that. But again, as we said in prior conversation, you can't give what you don't have. So exactly. to be able to generate that love within yourself, for yourself and for others, that's unconditional. And we all have that capability of having that unconditional love. It's not transactional. It's like, oh, I love you because you did this. Right, exactly. And in fact, it protects you from that. So it's a kind of a, a vaccine against that. There is such power in locus of control, locus of agency, where you can go, okay, these are the things that I know how to do for myself, where mm -hmm. I can drive my own happiness, affect my own happiness. So the happiness we get in relationships, by the way, is much more effective when it's happiness because of what we were able to bring to a relationship rather than happiness based on what we could take from a relationship mm -hmm. or what we could get from a relationship or what we needed from the relationship. The long-term sense of satisfaction and meaning and purpose comes from our sense of what we've been able to contribute, not from our sense of what we were able to get from it. Right. In fact, there's this funny inverse relationship between the more you get from a relationship, the more likely you are to feel undeserving. That'd be extremely asymmetrical, right? Because that invokes either resentment because you're giving more than you're getting, or you feel guilty because you're getting more than you're giving. Right. And even if one person is very happy to be giving it, and of yeah. course, what you want is relationships where different people are giving and getting different things. Things are out of phase on purpose so that at any given moment, things even out and certainly even out over time. But yeah, there's that notion of agency and that sense of your true satisfaction, your true happiness, your true sense of meaning and purpose is going to come from what you bring to the table. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can bring your own happiness, bring your own abundance to the table, you both end up with more to work with as a result of that. Yeah. And so it's subtle, but it's powerful. And it also frees you up from society in ways that you can't get freed otherwise in terms of being able to really contribute to society rather than being stuck with this idea that you have to be hunting out there in society to try and find the happiness that you're trying to fill the black hole in your heart with, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Victor Frankl talks about finding meaning and purpose even in darkest times and darkest situations. So this is not to put a happy gloss on bad things, but you've got to create that space where you can find something that works and focus on that. The, Which is um, the opposite of putting a happy gloss 
This right. is where you get your actual power to be able to deal with the difficult stuff that life inevitably throws at all of us. The other thing that came to mind, the power of being co-committed also, what's implicit in that is how do you show up as your best self, whether in a friendship, in a romantic relationship, in the workplace, and so on, and say, how do I commit to at least that intention? You don't always get it. Like some days are bad days. Everyone has them. But on balance to say, I'm really going to show up. I'm really going to be fully present to the other person, appreciatively listening and engaging with the other person, seeking to understand, coming from a, a place of curiosity and a level of awareness of what's going on around me, but also self-awareness of what my role is and how do I impact the people and the environment based on my actions or my lack of action. There are a lot of things that if we think about, again, positive versus negative engagement, sometimes they're just sins of omission. It's not anything that we did that was bad. It was the absence of doing something proactively. So we've been thinking a lot about workplace culture, certainly with our ninjas this summer. We've been doing the deep dive into how to design a workplace culture, especially one that's digital because of the pandemic. There are millions of people who are working online that did not used to work online. And physical workplace culture doesn't necessarily translate online. How do you do that? How do you signal that you're present, that you're contributing, that you're being supportive and so on? Because those gestures are different online. So how do you signal, yes, I heard you. Yes, I acknowledge this. And so there are these tiny behaviors, tiny habits of just saying, yeah, if it's in the project management, I need to comment that this is my you know, my feedback on something, or I actually met this deadline, I actually checked it off on the platform. Because when we're not on Zoom, we can't see each other. Or if we're not on Slack, we can't see each other. So how can we signal to people that yes, we're engaged, yes, we're committed. And these tiny gestures actually matter in terms of showing commitment. I am co-committed. I am doing this versus ghosting, checking out, being absent. Because people will read all sorts of stories, they'll interpret all sorts of things based on your action or lack of action. So how right. do we do better signal? The brains fill that stuff in. Yeah. Uh, always. Always. Well, you should see the catalog of stories that I have about you. <laughs> I can just imagine. Margaret, you, you mentioned the our own really interesting hard work over the last few months around culture design for ourselves. And, and let's give a little bit of that backstory that, you know, we've had a lab at Stanford for the last 12 years now, coming out of a project in the Persuasive Tech Lab and then eventually, as of 2010, being our own lab. And then setting up the Institute in The Hague in 2017. Right, so the lab being traditional, typical academic lab, and we have run it like a traditional, typical academic lab inside of a big university bureaucracy, right? And so it was interesting as we started looking then at how do we really start setting up the culture of the Institute, which has been a project we've been building, but hasn't really become a populated project until this well, it's been a series of summer institutes and things like that right up until February and then when the pandemic hit and then suddenly we had 30 interns and we were going from four part-time people to a bunch of full-time people and a bunch of really committed interns and suddenly going, okay, we have to actually start practicing what we tell all of our, all the different organizations, companies and governments and so on that we work with around the world. We need to start practicing that internally and designing the institute to actually have the culture we tell other people how to do. And so we move from sort of teaching, we know is really effective and valuable because we've seen our partners adopt it and see positive impact from it. And also it's heavily research-based. 
but we hadn't actually had to practice it ourselves. And that's been um, painful. (laughs) Well, part of it is we're transcending cultures, right? So in the Institute, it's outward facing. We're developing programs, products, and so on as we make this evolution from being very research and academic, internally focused, to really having impact in the world. So that requires a different set of skills, different operation, and so on. Academia deadlines are loosely held. You know, if it can take you eight years to get a PhD, deadlines are fairly flexible. In the business world, deadlines matter because you're expending capital and payroll and, and you got to make things happen. Otherwise, you run out of money, right? Full stop. If you don't deliver the product, you don't get the customer, you're dead. And so making that transition to something that's leaner, more operational, more GSD, get stuff done, it's been interesting to bridge that because you have to change the mindset and the accountability and the responsibility and the roles and so on. And not everyone can make that transition. When we were working with a German company a few years ago, they were going through a transformation from an old way of working to a new way of working. And there's an entire cohort of employees that were not down for the new plan. And they said, okay, we're going to try to retrain you. If this isn't who you are and if this isn't who you're willing to be, you're going to be left by the wayside. And that's one of the consequences of any kind of transformation. But then it goes back to the individual. You have to decide, do you have a growth mindset? about yourself as a professional, as an individual? Can you bridge that? Are you willing to do that? If you have a fixed mindset, this is the way I am, this is the way I'm always going to be, and I'm not going to change. (laughs) Especially in 2020, let me tell you, everything's changing. So you better find your internal agile, right? (laughs) And change the story in your head that you are retrainable, that you are adaptable, that you can shapeshift and move in this new direction. Because quite frankly, the context is forcing us all to be nimble and agile in a way that we may not have had to do in the past. And so again, being co-committed, as opposed to being a victim, this victim consciousness, all these things are happening to you. They're happening at you. How do you switch again from this conscious leadership from at you to with you to through you? Is shifting that mindset can all of a sudden become much more empowering, but also there are huge opportunities for new things you can do, personal growth, professional growth. And when we talk about our engagement framework of like, we don't know actually what the upper limits are of positive engagement or positive peace. You can also see that with yourself. What are the upper limits? You don't know, actually. There, there's so many different ways that you can develop that are hard to imagine when you're in a very fixed mindset. I do think this also relates to coming up with new solutions. If you have a victim consciousness, a victim mindset, where things are happening at you and you don't feel like you have control, then your ability to perceive a solution is very limited because the solution is in the power of somebody else. You don't feel like you have a role in co-creating a solution or co-creating a future. And that's a terrible place to be because then you're in a state of fear being very defensive about preserving something that may not be preservable because the context and the environment is changing so rapidly. And instead of saying, I'm going to hang on to this thing, this identity, this whatever it might be, to let go and say, okay, can I imagine if I could wave a magic wand using some BJ state, if I could wave a magic wand and be or do something different in the future, what might that be? That possibility space is actually quite open. And it's not to say that, unlike the, you know, in the U.S., we tell our kids, you can grow up to be anything you want to be. That's not entirely true. 
because there's ability and circumstance and finance and all these things that come into play. However, having a plan, an aspirational plan, you can get closer to that goal if you put it out there than if you don't. If you say that nothing's possible, I guarantee you nothing's possible. If you think something is possible, even if you get halfway there, that's far further than where you started. And then you can pivot from that point and say, well, now that I'm here with these new capabilities, now where am I positioned and where can I go from this new spot on the map? And I think that's how we begin to imagine a better world, a more peaceful world, when we orient ourselves toward these positive outcomes. I think the other thing from our framework, you know, we think about episodes of engagement for the purpose of designing, for the purpose of interaction design to increase positive engagement. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our work is deeply rooted in concepts of interaction design from the time that we spent Center for Design Research in mechanical engineering at Stanford. Also from the work that we did with Annie Hentis. Annie Jantis. There's an inside joke there that we mispronounce her name the Spanish way because we both speak Spanish. And so we sort of assumed it was that. And it was several years before she finally one day said, you know, it's pronounced Jantis. <laughs> I should know that. Part of what we're looking for in positive engagement in the way we frame out increasing quality of engagement is getting over the threshold where we are generating for each other mutual benefit in excess of our cost of engagement. Mm -hmm. Because until we can get to that threshold, our engagement isn't sustainable and scalable. And so I intuit that part of how we know we are doing co-committed engaging is that it is generating mutual benefit in excess of our engagement costs. And so interesting to look at the overlap of frameworks there and see where the intersection points are. And certainly any time, and we see this often, where people will contact us, say, we want to work with you. Right? And we'll spend numerous hours of staff time and our time trying to figure out what that possibility is. And more often than not, we don't find anything. And so if you go like, Whew, well, those are hours that we won't get back. But what's interesting is that at least within the first three months, say, there's no payoff there. But there are people that we've met that have come back years later where we can have some successful collaboration. So there's a short game and a long game as well in terms of how we interact with each other. And we try to be good to, <laughs> to people. We're human, so we don't always get it. You know, sometimes the email gets lost and we never respond to things like that, like so many people do. But at least certainly for myself, I'm very aware of the probability of having another engagement with that person in the coming years is reasonable because we might be on parallel paths and we're looking to see, are the paths going to cross soon? And then, you know, you have that interaction and you can't find it yet because one or both parties just isn't there yet. But I have found it to be fruitful later on. So always be good to people because you never know when you're going to see them again. The Silicon Valley model of you never know when you're going to be working with them again. Absolutely. It's a small pond here. Or wishing you couldn't work with them again. Yeah. Right. Certainly in Silicon Valley, that's been a pattern of people who work together well in a company, in a startup, in a department, and then they go off and they start something new. PayPal Mafia, the Fair Children, when you look at the history of semiconductors. The colleagues who love working with them go with them because it's so right. hard to find a good working relationship. Right. And so part of the work experience, you know, when we think about the outcomes, say, for our interns, aside from having effective professional work experiences, 
getting these skills, but also that they're part of a cohort that in years to come, they might say, oh, yes, I worked with so-and-so back in the summer of 2020, and we work really well together, or I got to know this person in terms of their character, their skills, their work ethic, and so on. That's my person who comes to mind for this opportunity in the future, right? And certainly the value operates that way. We have a long memory when it comes to people like, yeah, that person who was really good, go recruit him. Tends to be him more than anyone else. But you got to be in the cohort, right? You got to show up, show what you can do. People will remember. And Margarita, more than, more than the heavy touch of, oh, I'm going to employ that person. One of the things that's interesting about the Valley is the light touch network of, yeah, I worked with that person, you know, in 2008 when we were first starting out at Sanford and so on. And they impressed me then. And I probably wouldn't reach back with a heavy ask, but I would not hesitate to reach back and say, hey, what do you think about this? Or, hey, this person is doing this. It's closer to your domain of expertise. What's your feedback on it? Or what's your thought? Or, you know, could you take coffee with that person or whatever? And that, right. the power of that light touch in all these directions and keeping that institutional memory of who's good at what for the mm-hmm. purpose of provoking those tiny little light connections. Right. I think of that very much in terms of um, what we're intentionally building an institutional practice of with generating lots and lots of episodes of positive engagement across all sorts of different boundaries internally and externally as we create the um, the innovation ecosystem of the institute and around it. Right. Um, I mean, in the Valley, you know, if you looked at my, I have a drawer full of stock options. Stock options. <laughs> <laughs> Failed startups. <laughs> You know, you know, I could, I could, I could throw a rock anywhere in this neighborhood. <laughs> There's probably the probability of someone having a drawer full of dead stock options is pretty reasonable. Um, so we don't necessarily judge people on the success or failure of the venture because a lot of things just don't work. Well, but and, and we, the thing is, if but, I may, yeah, right there. The, the thing is that in the Valley, we're all doing high risk, high impact stuff. And so we know that it has a high failure rate. Right. But that, yeah. But that wasn't my point. So I know that's not your point. I just want to emphasize that because I'm trying to queue you up for the next talk. <laughs> okay. Let me finish. So, uh, um, so in the Valley, we all have these history of, of failed ventures and startups and projects or whatever. And yet we don't, when we look at each other, we all know that we have a comparable resume or track record, but what we actually remember is how collegial the person was, you know, how responsive they were. Um, it's really more about their character, uh, what they were able to produce. Um, you know, could they get it on, done on time? Was it well done? All that. So we care about the execution. We can't control whether or not something's going to be successful. What we can control is the quality of our work. What we can control is the quality of our interactions and our episodes of engagement with some other party, right? It's similar to um, Andrew Zimmerman, who's a behavior designer out of Stanford, BJ's lab. Uh, he was a basketball player at Stanford, and he and I were rapping about behavior design one time. And he was working on a, um, an app, a performance app. And he was saying with athletes, what they do is they practice. They do their drills. They, they, you know, all that stuff on the court. And they practice, practice, practice. They cannot guarantee the outcome that they will win. 
but what they do is they practice so when the opportunity presents itself and they get the ball they know what to do with it <laughs> so it's all about increasing the probability of success because they have mastery over their game but they can't guarantee the outcome of the game i think in the valley in terms of um all the people in the ecosystem, whether a lawyer, your UX, UI, coder, sales, marketing, product development, whatever, um, when we focus on being on having mastery of those things, then we can be the MVP in that team. We can all be MVPs. It's not like one person gets to be, you know, we're all valuable players. And that's what we remember because the next time we do a pickup game, the next startup, we want to be able to say, hey, you know, these people are really great in these positions. <laughs> I want to put together that team. Yeah. Um, in the Bartles archetypes of game, game player archetypes, um, socializers are the people who are kind of the glue in games because achievers and explorers and dominators, they need someone to, they need a counterparty to play with. Right. And you see this in mobile social games as well. You need to have the socializers there. Otherwise, there's, there's no game. Um, so, and I think about socializing is really how good can we be to each other, right? To make it pleasant because we are social beings. We like to interact with each other for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's what makes this stuff bearable. That's what makes the hard things bearable. It's like, oh, you know, I, I had a fellow companion, fellow journey per person on this journey. And, um, it made we, it lighter. We went, through, we went through hard stuff together, you know. We right. we, we passed through crucibles together, and and therefore I shared uh, my rice and beans with you. The the friendship is forged in in uh, hard times. Yeah, exactly. And difficult challenges. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think we have one other tremendous benefit there. I, I mean, good relationships are forged in hard times, no matter what. But, but when the hard times are about because you have deliberately, mutually chosen to try and do a difficult thing mm -hmm. um, that needs doing in the world, right. um, as opposed to just, you know, circumstances forced a difficult thing on you. Um, those, I, I, think that, I think that intentionality makes a difference. Um, well, I think that um, it's interesting because sometimes circumstances force something on you, but we don't necessarily step up to the challenge right and so again that's that victim consciousness it's like oh this thing's happening at me um dan sat who was the um coach that i had at astia he's a uh does leadership performance and and he again sports psychology i love these sports psychology coaches then they go into leadership and um he gave a talk at our tedx hayward event that we did a number of years ago and he was talking about courage and how courage is really about, you know, when you look at the Latin root, it's coming from your heart, right? And so if we can be heart-centered in terms of how we approach the world, so this, yes, there's this circumstance, it's difficult. Do we have the courage to step up and do the difficult thing? It's uncomfortable. It's like unpleasant. It, I, might, I might have confrontation. I might have conflict. But if I can do it with courage and speak my truth and be authentic and say, look, but we're, we're truly authentically trying to solve this problem or find an opportunity in all this, find a solution in all, all this. Um, I think that's where humanity can really shine 
Um, I don't think that data moves people the way getting people to open their heart, because when you can open your heart, then many, many more things are possible. We can actually figure out a way through the data. <laughs> we could say like, oh, you know, yeah, the numbers don't good, but don't look good. But, you know, maybe we can find a way around it or through it or under it or something. But if you don't have that courage, all the favorable numbers in the world won't get you there. Um, and those numbers take us to the notion of currencies that we um, have largely learned from Chris Bennett, our, our game designer in the Smith Single Lab. Yeah. I've largely learned from Chris Bennett, our game designer in Resonance in the lab. The, um, the, the notion that there are many different um, uh, quantities of things in life that we value, and they can sometimes be exchanged for each other, and sometimes you have a surface of one or and a need for the other, and, and mm -hmm. so on. Um, I had a point with that, and I was going somewhere. I forget where. Um, okay. Um, I think that... Um, I, I, if, I would want to... We, go ahead. Because I, mm -hmm. um, I, don't, I don't think we've had a chance to talk about this yet in, in one of our... Um, I want to call these a fireside chat because I have the empty fireplace behind me here, but <laughs> yeah, um, in our conversations, um, part of what makes our work really interesting and really valuable to people is that we have learned not just to survive failure, mm -hmm. but how to turn failure into uh, an asset and then, and then how to actually thrive on failure. And that will seem counterintuitive to people. And I always want to change the word failure because I know in the Valley, it's very popular to talk about failure. And then outside of the Valley, failure is, is cause for punishment. I wish we yeah. could find a different word for yeah. failure. So I, I, I want to have this conversation and I want to go through that and actually do the reframe so that people can see, yes, but we're not sugarcoating failure. We have learned to thrive on the really difficult, painful stuff. We learn to thrive on that. That's part of what makes the, the learning to thrive lesson so valuable. And then when you learn to thrive on that, that defangs the failure. You start looking for um, um, the... Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I still, I still want to change the word. I, it, we'll, we'll get to the change. It's just, it's a sequence. So we'll get yeah. to the change in the end because if you approach it with the right mentality, mm -hmm. um, then you have, you have a different outcome, and then it isn't failure. Exactly. Well, so, for instance, if you think about it as practice, as a practice, mm -hmm. and, again, going back to, um, you know, for being a nearsighted, slightly cross-eyed, buck-toothed, bookworm girl, I'm really into athletics, probably no athletic talent whatsoever. Um, but what I love about athletes is they practice their craft. Hmm. and they study what they do and they say okay i'm trying to get this shot you know i'm trying to get that ball through the hoop whatever it is and they practice and they practice and they try different angles and they learn about their body and they learn about how to throw it and they say okay in order to get it closer to getting it in consistently maybe i need to work out i do need to work on my upper body strength i need to work on fast twitch muscles i need to do this there are all these variables that they can experiment with and tune to get closer to their goal right and 
if they, and then they can begin to say like, okay, what are the things that I can control about myself? What are the things I can control about the environment? What are, you know, even like, it's interesting, like the design of golf balls and all the dimples on golf balls. Why? Because it makes it more aerodynamic. Okay. Someone was experimenting on that because I say, okay, when you, we've hit the upper limits of how far we can hit this ball just by human mechanical strength. How do we change the aerodynamics of the ball so it go, travels further? To me, that's fascinating because there are all these things that you can tune that create possibilities of what we can do, right? It, it could be an innovation with ourselves, with the technology, with a process, with a technique um, that makes new things possible. And so to me, it's just a path of discovery. It's not about failure, but it's more like, wow, I tried to get there. So, and you've heard me tell this story in the past in the early 90s in, in the Valley and venture capital and corporate, we did a ton of investment on pen-based computing. Most of it <laughs> was a bit of a wash, right? And um, there was, you know, uh, AT&T had a product and there were startups. A friend of mine worked for Momenta um, that was this beautiful industrial design pen-based laptop computer. It was super cool. Um, uh, Motorola, everybody had a device in all different shapes and sizes with stylus, without stylus. Microsoft came out with pen windows and on and on and on. And on. They all, right. From a commercial standpoint, they were all a bust. The only thing that survived was Palm, the Palm device. And, uh, Wait. but. Sorry. Your video just froze. Uh, lost you at bust, go from bust, from commercial okay. to the world. Okay, so there were all these experiments, all these products that were introduced to the market around this concept, this vision that the next big thing was going to be pen-based computing, right? So that was the, the, the thesis. Pen-based computing, everyone's going to want one. And so you had all these different interpretations or experiments on what that would look commercially. They all failed commercially except for the Palm device and i was the idea when we were working on the industrial design for palm and making it super cool for executives but they all failed what was interesting though was that um they in the valley we were basically as we say in the lab mapping the des the desert we were mapping the desert because we were all discovering the things that needed to be invented or improved in order to realize that aspirational goal of this product it was oh the batteries are too big we need to make them smaller the batteries don't last long enough we need to make we need to come up with new technology for longer life batteries the screens oh gosh they scratch are they backlit should they not be backlit do we want to use a stylus oh people use the stylus maybe we should use a finger if you do that how do you do the recognition on and on and on and we didn't have color displays that were tiny back then <laughs> You know, and th th there wasn't enough contrast. They were hard to read and so on. But in that process, all these companies did all this R&D to figure all these things out. And then Apple did their Newton and it was an interesting product, but it also failed. It didn't really catch on. Um, Compaq came out with their PDA that caught on and Casio had theirs. And then Apple did their iPod, Right. And they were coming up with a new UX UI. There's no finger that's like that scrolling dial. And then you get the iPhone. The distance between 1990 and 2007 <laughs> to finally get a product that had 
where everything, all the technology innovation finally converged in one place in one product was possible. Now we could take any slice and say, failure, 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 or we could look at it and say, improvement, 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 right? Um, for the, I mean, to be really clear here, yeah. the part that I'm trying to get at that I think it's important to bookmark for you to talk about. Uh, I'm going to glue these. <laughs> word or fail, yeah. Um, I know. You know, in the last like, podcast, you kept on changing your glasses. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, there was like one pair, and then he was like, the next thing you'd have another pair. <laughs> this one is going to be the <laughs> the shoulder business. I have like five different pairs here. I use them for different things. I um, noticed. The, um, um, the thing I want to bookmark that I think it's really important that you get into is mm -hmm. that for the people who were involved in any one of those startups um, and who lost money in those startups uh, and, and who lost years of their life and so on, those were real painful, you know, to sugarcoat that and say it wasn't failure is not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is say the Valley and the venture capital mindset and some other things like this have a way to approach that and make that failure worth it. Well, you know, and, 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 and here's the thing. When I was at Horsley Bridge Partners, which is a very elite fund of funds, and I was there in the 90s. And so the way a fund of funds works is that our limited partners would be people like Kodak Pension Fund and Exxon and the state yeah. of Utah and so on. They would invest in our fund. And then we would invest in the funds from uh, on Sand Hill Road, like Kleiner Perkins and more David Al and all the big names of that day, of that era. And those funds would then invest in companies. So we would have a look through from our fund into, you know, so we would have in our fund a portfolio of 25 venture funds. Those 25 venture funds would in turn invest in 25 companies. And there might be a little bit of overlap, but not necessarily. And we would do them in different stages. So we would seed early, late, mezzanine, and we would have some geographic diversity and some sector diversity as well. So we would have medical devices and enterprise software and biotech and all of it. So we could get a really good, rep imagine like um, the S&P 500 of venture funds, right? Very diverse. What was interesting mathematically, because we had a PhD economist on our team, is that we would do the analysis of all the underlying companies for all our funds. And consistently we would see that 20% of the investments made 80% of the returns. It's Pareto, 80-20 rule. Consistently, consistently, consistently. We would run the numbers and the ROI and time-weighted versus the, blah, 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 the whole thing. Always came out this way. It's almost like a law of venture capital physics that if you make 10 investments, five of, them, five of them are going to make no money at all. Nothing. Dollar in, zero back half of them of the other half three of them would break even two of them would be profitable and of the two one of them would return the entire value of the fund plus a profit and that pretty much held for the five six years that i was there and it's it's a broader heuristic in in venture right now so you diversify you know that most of them aren't going to work, but because you're trading in the area of innovation, we're not yeah. talking about an incremental improvement. We're talking about creating a brand new sector, discovering something that's brand new. 
if you hit it, it's like huge, right? And that's something that in venture we've been able to do consistently decade over decade. Um, And that's powerful. In most other domains, they don't operate that way. It tends to be, I'm going to, I'm, I don't want to swing for the fences and come up with something that's absolutely brand new and disruptive. I want to make this tiny little incremental improvement, right? So I've got, you know, Doritos and then my product improvement is I put, you know, uh, sriracha based Doritos, right? You know, I make them spicy or something. It's like, woohoo, you know, it's not really an innovation. I mean, it's an, it's a derivative product line. You forked it, you add, added an ingredient or, you know, I, I make products and, you know, this product line, like big pens, they made big pens for women, lady big pens, and they made them pink. Yeah. Go figure. Anyway, that's not really an innovation. It's not going to spawn a brand new industry. It's not going to create huge capabilities. And what I loved about venture when I was in venture was that it was a glimpse into the future. It was a glimpse into what might be possible. And we were making bets that we would like to see this happen in the future we want this to exist in the future because it doesn't exist right now so venture capital is in some ways a field of dreams you know if we fund it can we make it so and if we if we if we bet on these people who want to do something that doesn't exist at all we'll make we'll make some bets that yeah we agree that would be fantastic if that existed in the world and i love that about venture back in the 90s because it the, the things that we were investing in were amazing. Did most of them work? No, but some of them did, and and we're living with you know the new world that they created as a result. You know. Yeah. Um. um I want to revisit this topic because you've got powerful life lessons there. Um, if we if we go. People who want to do something transformative in the world, that they, you know, they have a dream, maybe they don't know what product or service or new company they want to start yet, but they, they know they want to start something, they know they want to build something, they know they want to have a, a major positive impact on the world, mm-hmm. and they're terrified to start. They're frozen with fear because they don't know where to start, they don't know how to start, and they don't know how to de-risk it. I want, I want to condense um, sort of three things for how we get people from there take the underlying life lessons of venture capital, how you apply a venture capitalist mindset to life. Um, mm-hmm. And then I'm, I'm going to get you to condense that into five minutes at some point, you know, okay. and, and then um, going beyond that to how you would de-risk it the way we do in the peace innovation process. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that three-step, here's where most people in the world are right now is, is, um, frozen with fear about the thing they care about most um, because they can't see how to get there without risking too much right? Um, or, or without taking a risk that they can't afford to take. They, and they just can't see a way, right? Right. Um, and what I'm looking for is a way to reach those people and say, here's a way to de-risk the process. It's a proven 40-year-old Silicon Valley, 50-year-old Silicon Valley process, you know, mm-hmm. from the dawn of venture capital in the 70s in the Valley. Yeah. Um, the... And that's one way you could do it. Mm-hmm. And I want people to understand the core lessons of that, but then I want them to also see we've gone way beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's a whole other layer of juiciness on top of that, but I want them to see yeah. both of those 
um, both of those things. How they can, and the, and the key thing is not how Silicon Valley did it. The key thing is how they can apply it to their life right. and how we can help them apply it to their life. That's what so, I'm on. So when we step back and we look at capital markets, um, so you're a pension fund manager or an endowment or something, you might have two to 4% of your entire investment strategy in venture capital and private equity. So it's a tiny little sliver. Everything else, again, it's this portfolio approach because you, you're trying to get a blended rate of return, whatever your target is. It might be, say, 7%. Um, people invest in venture capital because in good years, good vintage years, you can get like a 20% IRR on it, right? And you go, wow. But it's only 20% on 3% of what you've invested. And then so you spread it out over the, the other 97% and you've got bonds, you've got real estate, you've got all these other things that have different rates of return. And so when you when you spread that out, then it, it gets it gives you like a half a percent or one percent or two percent little boost, right? So in a in a portfolio approach, you never put all your chips on bread, right? You do a few of them. And so when you get that big gain, it gives you extra, it helps augment everything else that you're doing that is more secure. Um, for in within the venture capital industry itself, it attracts people who have a bigger appetite for risk. But in your overall portfolio, you've kind of firewalled it. So you can't, okay, I'm going to have, I'm going to have high risk, but it's really skinny. <laughs> right. And I think that when we manage our lives, you need to have an, a portfolio approach. So, you know, you might say, my portfolio approach is I have a steady eddy job. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, I know like for my cousins and in my community, the Hispanic community, we tend to go into the military. We tend to go into civil service a lot, right? When we're not in other service industries, certainly in my family, we did. Why did we go into civil service? Because you got a pension, right? And so for them, their portfolio approach is I'm going to have, it's not a very exciting job. It's not very glamorous. It's not world changing. But it's a steady eddy job, and at the end of 25 years, I can retire with a pension and health benefits. Check, right? They could, you could then be with that base, have a side hustle. You can say, I might have a side business or a side vocation or something that I'm passionate about that I am not dependent on to pay my rent, my mortgage, or whatever, right? Because I've got that covered somewhere else. But I have this other thing that it gives me something extra that's wonderful, right? For um, someone starting out, one of the things you need to figure out is where are you on the risk continuum? Now, some people know that they're entrepreneurial because they were doing lemonade stands and they had a hustle in high school and they just it was easy for them. Other people don't know. So how can you put your toe into figuring out something that's risky? You might join a startup. You might... Be part of a team where you can see how you like it. Do you like ambiguity or not? I know that for our interns, we've given them a whole range of experiences from things that are very concrete to things that are super ambiguous. And if they didn't know where they stood on that continuum, they do now. And some of them say, I love being in this blue ocean space where I need to figure things out. And other people are like, no, 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 no. Give me something with deadlines and tasks and 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 a checklist and exactly what I need to do because that's my happy space and other people have stretched saying oh that was my happy space but I've learned to be comfortable 
with the unknown. Yeah. What I, and just for the interns here, since a bunch of them will be watching this, um, my aspiration for them out of this uh, uh, time with us is that the people who do crave the structure and systems and process and so on, that they learn how to take any open ambiguous space and be able to impose that structure on it. Right. Um, so that, you know, because if you have the power to take any empty space and turn it into your happy space, then you've got power in the world. Right. So. And certainly when we look at some of the big planetary and existential challenges that we have right now, it's ambiguous. Like, what is, what is the correct solution to climate change? You know, All what is the correct solution to institutional racism? People are going like, I want to do something. They don't know what to do. And so What's part of it. COVID, let alone the next pandemic, when we don't even know what it's going to be. So Yeah, and or even if we do know the correct solution, th there might be the correct solution factually, but it's not correct socially. Sometimes facts don't translate into action if it isn't emotionally true for someone. And that's one of the things that we're discovering with the pandemic, because um, identity has been, and identity politics has been overlaid onto facts. So something as simple as masks, you could look at the data and say, you know, probabilistically, you should wear a mask because the risk of not wearing a mask outweighs, you know, the risk of wearing a mask, for instance. Um, but then it's been politicized. So now people are using it, uh, interpreting it as a social signal instead. So these things are getting conflated, right? They're getting, it's, 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 it's um, uh, blurring what you should do because depend, depending upon your context, if you're trying to signal to your tribe that you're part of your tribe and they don't wear masks and if you wear a mask, you're putting yourself at social risk. So that's, yeah. so you don't want to do that. If, if on the other hand, what you, you're putting on the mask because you have someone who's immunocompromised, then the right thing to do is put on the mask. Right. And so there's a lot of nuance in all this that, um, I don't think is is properly weighted no. in terms of people who are trying to guide the public on the right thing to do. So you almost need to give people choices and say, and, and also how do we educate people on probabilities? Yeah. Right. And, uh, and we kind of know that in a very simple way. And how do we communicate these, these other issues in a way that's really grounded for people and say like, well, you know, on balance, you should wear a mask. But yeah, risk taking is is everywhere in life, right? It, the risk taking. I, I couldn't hear any of that. I'm sorry. Super loud. Motorcycle no, 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 no. Okay, so risk taking is everywhere in life. There's risk taking in terms of who you choose for a life partner. There's risk taking in whether or not you choose to have children. Where, what city you live in, do you buy a house or not, what career path you take, um, what you study in college, do you go to college or not? And you can't avoid risk because there's risk in, you know, whatever choice you might say, well, that choice seems risky, so I'm not going to accept that choice. There's choice in not making that choice. As, sorry, there's risk in not making that choice as well. So Right. I think, I think the people, it's, the paradox is the people who are really risk averse put themselves most at risk when they don't make a decision. Yeah, yeah. So I, I really want to come back to that because I, a whole bunch of the people that could most use the stuff we've been building are in that position. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I'm just bookmarking that for future because, because 
we've got some quick, easy things we could give them that would just help them break free of that cycle. Right. And then we've got a process that they can come be part of along with a whole bunch of other people mm-hmm. where they can start to de-risk all their next steps towards success in a really systematic way right. um, and to make the world a better place in the process. Right. Because right now the, the challenge is that we need to take action to create the world that we want to live in, the world that we actually want to live in. And, um, but we're so scared that we're willing to tolerate a world that is unlivable for so many people and unjust for so many people because it's the devil we know, right? And we don't have confidence in building that better world. Um, and, and again, I want to bring it down to tiny behaviors, tiny steps and saying, but in your everyday life, there are things that you do on a regular basis that you may not see anymore. You, they're just invisible to you that you do in order to create um, a better world for your future self. And it could be something as simple as going for a walk every day because you're doing this tiny behavior around your health or being mindful of what you eat. So we actually already engage in practices that will take us where we want to be in the future. But we just, we discount it because it seems so trivial, right? So the things that we can do at a personal basis, but then there are things that need to be done at a systems level as well. And those are harder because as an individual, how do I influence the system? And that's a different conversation and a different, um, we need different models of innovation for that. And again, in the Valley, we do disruptive things. We create brand new industry that becomes aspirational that people want to go to that, that takes the energy away from the old way of doing things. So it's not going in and saying like, oh, you should, like for instance, uh, electric cars. We never have to go against something. We just make it so right. attractive to do the other thing that right. people take the energy away from the thing instead of having to. Right. So if, if we want to address climate change by getting people out of um, gas powered cars, we can scold them and shame them and all that. <clears throat> and it doesn't going to go very far. On the other hand, if we make a Tesla Roadster that is so sexy and such an object of desire that all the alpha males in Silicon Valley want one. <laughs> and so then it's not about the gas powered car. They go like, I want that. And then, it, then we're playing into social signaling and say like, oh, we all want that right it's not like steve jobs was scolding people and saying you don't want that old phone he just said look at this really fabulous shiny beautiful iphone everyone goes i want that and it killed nokia full stop you know he said i have something that will put a thousand songs in your pocket and people went like really he didn't say i'm going to take your cds away right he didn't say, I'm going to take your, your cassettes away. He said, oh, don't you want 2,000 songs in your pocket? And we went like, yeah, I want that. And Boom. Songs right? How do we make products and services that the outcome is a sustainable world, a world that is really resilient against climate change or if anything slows it down, if not reverses it? that is a more just world, that is a more equitable world. It is a world that is more abundant in every way where there's room for nature to be abundant. I think we need to make it an, an object of desire. I think it needs to be aspirational because we will naturally gravitate toward that 
the scolding, shaming, blaming strategy or the I'm going to give you the information and based on the information, you'll know what the right thing to do is. Exactly. Those are our are, are failed paths. I think, and this is the opportunity for entrepreneurs. This is the opportunity for corporate executives because how exciting is that and how motivating is that for you, your coworkers, your stakeholders to do something that's really exciting. Yeah. And, and it's and beautiful. Exciting, beautiful, and transformative in a positive way for the world and profitable and right. profitable. And I just want to underscore that in fact, you know, we've, we've been set up with this narrative that says, oh, if you, if you want to do good things, if you want to do beautiful things, if you want to do um, um, positive things, start an NGO, start a charity, start a philanthropy, you know. Um, but in fact, if you do those things well, they can be more profitable than the best business you could have. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, the fact of the matter is they just need to be profitable enough. Yeah, but, uh, I mean, you know, yeah, so, so yeah, they, they can be more profitable. Yes, I mean, they you know, the, uh, my aspiration for the entrepreneurs that I work with, and if I was going to go into venture capital again, is my aspiration isn't to create a trillion dollar company that sucks the life out of everything else. <laughs> but my my aspiration is to make hundreds or thousands or millions of companies where people can have a middle class life, where we can have a sustainable world. And like, I'm hell yes to all that rather than a winner take all and the rest of us are are struggling yeah. right because if we if we organize our world solely around ROI we will end up in a place that we don't like to be if we organize our world around relationships uh, sustainability beauty abundance and and we make those financially viable that's going to get us to a place we all want to be we have to come back also and talk about capital velocity and the importance of capital velocity as you move, you know, sort of big lumps of new wealth that are created with this superstar winner-take-all model. As you move that wealth as fast as possible through, uh, you know, continuously branching out to capillary, capillary networks of where, where that wealth is needed. Um, one of the challenges we have in the financial system is, is that that takes decades right now. And, and part of what we're trying to address, and, and you know this from venture capital, and I know this from investment banking, if you, if, if you have, you know, $100 billion, no matter how much you want to do good things with that, there are not enough good investments. There are yeah. not enough good investments to be able to put that money to work in ways that will really change the world. In and some ways, there's do, too much money. No. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's about because the money's desperately needed in other places and not just the money, but the wealth, right. the underlying yeah. wealth. It is desperately needed. So there's not it's, too much of it, but it's a distribution problem. It, it is a challenge of how do you get it from where it is to where it's needed right mm -hmm. now. And this is so important for our work because what we're trying to do as we build a network of peace tech entrepreneurs is create a systematic way for large chunks of that capital to be allocated towards the people who have the systematic tools and skills now after working with us to right. be able to actually um, uh, address in, these things. In, in, in some ways, um, so like venture capital is very bespoke. And the reason why... Sorry, it's hot yes. enough here today that I have to have the window open. You know, I don't no hear it. But, uh, yeah, it's yeah. not coming through. Okay. 
It's, uh, but I can't hear what you say, so I don't, yeah. Okay. okay. So, venture capital. Is there a lag? No, but every time I start talking, you start talking. No, <laughs> because, I mean, you know. I talk when you're not talking, and then you start talking. For me, I see you starting to talk two seconds later. So Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, it's the Zoom live. It's that not me. Up. <laughs> Venture capital is very bespoke. It's... Um, very human driven so it doesn't scale um and i think that one of the challenges of putting large amounts of money to work is you have to do the due diligence and or you should do proper due diligence i should say and the amount of work to look at a small deal is the same amount of labor as it is to make a big investment hence the bias toward making bigger investments because of the people involved you got to do the research you got to talk to people, you do background checks, you're doing all sorts of assessments, gut checks and everything else. And that doesn't scale. The liability of not doing that as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, you know, the liability is like, you don't make any money. And I've, I've seen really poor due diligence out there. Um, the liability is you never work in finance again. That's the liability. Well, if, 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 it, if it's... If, yeah. if you didn't do your due diligence, that's what I mean. Yeah, I've seen poor, very poor due diligence, perfunctory, basically following someone else's lead, assuming that they did the due diligence, and you're just going along with. Um, there's no punishment for that, except, you know, it's sort of a a gamble because if it's successful, yay, and if it isn't, well, you didn't make any money. That's the punishment. Um, the opportunity, and I don't know how this will be solved, is to do it algorithmically, is to do it statistically. It's like, okay... How do you make a lot of small bets? How do you use algorithms to do that? And of course, with the algorithms, you have to be very conscious of bias. Um, but that might be a way to scale um, investment and make lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of bets and see what comes out. Um, we don't do that well here in the United States. We have a lot of, um, again, implicit bias in our banking and in our investing, historically redlining, historically um, denying people access to capital, uh, proactively denying people access to capital. So having this mindset of just making lots and lots of bets on people is, is contrary to the history of how we've deployed capital um, in this country. So that would be something that would need to be flipped as well. It's something that we are flipping. I mean, the peace innovation process is designed specifically to address that. When when we say in the lab that um, part of our mission is to create a price signal to move capital markets, mm. part of what we've been thinking about is, you know, once you have that price signal, how do you have the conduits to actually move those capital flows? Right. And right. What, what we've been building is a sustainable, scalable process for um a systematic way to actually handle that kind of capital flow. Yeah. So I'm looking at the time and it's yep. getting dark where you are. Yeah. So, so we've bookmarked a bunch of topics for the future and some of these things are not quite ready for, for um, uh, I, I want another iteration or two, mm -hmm. but I want to take stuff that we've bookmarked. Hopefully some of these sound bites serve as useful um Sort of telenovela style, you know, and next week we're going to talk about it. <laughs> okay, so let's pause because I want to yeah. do the close. Every time I do the close, you add on. So I'm doing the close. So I'm going to say, I'm going to do the close.
So, Mark, we've covered a lot of ground today. Uh, we've talked about um, uh, codependent versus co-committed relationships and episodes of engagement. We've talked about risk and how you uh, look at risk, certainly in Silicon Valley. Uh, we've touched on culture and how good we can be to each other uh, and how difficult it is to design culture these days. I look forward to talking to you again. It's a far-ranging conversation. Um, and that's it. <laughs> Let me do that again. <laughs> because I don't know. Actually, I realized as I was saying all that, I don't know what's going to make it in the final edit. So maybe I right. should just say... Um, We've covered, covered a wide range of conversations. Covered okay. a lot of ground. Okay. Hey, Mark. It was a pleasure talking to you today and uh, from my backyard in Palo Alto. To, to our backyard in The Hague here. So, yeah. Yeah. And uh, next time I'm going to ask you about all those post-its on the wall behind you. I'm curious to know what they have to say. But in the next meantime, product coming up. In the, in the meantime, hasta la próxima, as we say. See. Um, looking forward to it very much. Yeah. Wide-ranging conversation. Thank you for that. Um, lot of things to do follow-up episodes on in this conversation, I think, and I'm uh, looking forward to that very much. Great. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. And that's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Solve for X, the podcast where we discuss real solutions to problems big and small. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode for links to everything we talked about today. And don't forget, if you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you leave a review and hit subscribe so you're notified when the next episode goes live.